G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, where we are entering season four of our coverage of the early chapters of the book of Genesis, which we call the primeval history. Before we launch into Genesis chapter 4 for this season, I thought it would be useful to go back over some previous material and recap our coverage of the serpent seed doctrine, which we hear so much about in fringe Christian circles, uh, because I want to really show how this really plays no part in our reading of Genesis 4. But if we bring that baggage in to Genesis 4, we're just not going to see what the text is actually saying. So over the course of this episode and the next, we're going to just revisit that. So this is going to just consist of excerpts from some of the previous episodes. Hopefully it'll be a good refresher if you haven't listened to those episodes in a while, uh, or just get you up to speed if you haven't got there yet. And it should set us up anyway to be able to read Genesis 4 without bringing that baggage into the text with us. So with that in mind, we'll get underway. And the first of these audio clips goes back to a bit over halfway through our first season, I believe episode 13. We've got a series of clips to play uh, that will cover this whole topic. So hope you enjoy it, and we're looking forward to bringing you all new, fresh material in our coverage of Genesis 4 very soon. So stick around, and uh, yeah, I hope this is beneficial. Bible only gives details about Goliath's height, and no other person in all of Scripture is actually personally measured and given an exact height in units of measure. Even Goliath's height is disputed, but we know that the giants were tall because that's what the Bible tells us in several places. I'm talking about height because it's common in some circles for people to be very wary or suspicious around tall people today. Maybe this guy or that guy is one of the Nephilim. The same goes for people of the uh, polydactyl trait, where they have six fingers or toes at their extremities. We even see this kind of stigma around red hair or extra teeth, believe it or not. I went to school with a kid who had extra fingers. I have a mate with one extra toe. Uh, My gardener is a guy with bright red hair, and he's a good few inches taller than me. His family heritage is from a place not far away from a land known for ancient giants. But... I don't worry that these people might kill and or eat me. So why not? Most of this stuff is coming to us passed down from folk tales with mythological origins. Maybe there was some stuff in the ancient world that we could connect to actual giants. As an example, if you've been reading the passages we were just talking about in 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles about the giants, you know that there was a giant with extra digits. As I point out in my book, That one guy was so remarkable that they didn't even bother with recording his name. It was like, well, 
I don't have to tell you his name. You know who I mean. That guy with the extra fingers and toes. Like, we all know who that guy is. He was a well-known exception to the norm. The other giants were not like that. In other words, and contrary to the kind of garbage you hear from many commentators on the giants, there actually is no such thing as a Nephilim profile. You're never going to find a real example of an enormous person with red hair, double rows of teeth, six fingers or toes on each limb, grey or pasty-looking skin, black eyes. Am I missing anything? Oh, uh, and, a, and a height-to-chest ratio of three to one or something. Yada, yada, yada. Uh, it's, it's also true that the idea of passing down secret Nephilim bloodlines is garbage as well. It simply cannot happen. At the moment, I'm reading uh, S. Joshua Swamadas and his book, The Genealogical Adam and Eve. And what I'm really appreciating about it is that he points out the fact that you can trace genealogies back some two to 3,000 years, actually longer. And when you do that, you discover that thousands of people alive back then were all, genealogically speaking, ancestors of every person alive today. It's simply impossible to rule out interbreeding between populations. And the moment a single individual interbreeds into a population, they break that genealogical isolation, becoming a common ancestor to the entire population in that group in a relatively short time frame. So there is no such thing as a secretly preserved bloodline. So all those conspiracy theorists are just barking up the wrong tree? Yep, the wrong family tree, Even See what I did there? I see it, and I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, additionally... Genetic material comes down to you from a very wide pool. If you get half your DNA from each parent and they get theirs the same way, then you only have to go back 10 generations and you're getting maybe a tenth of 1% of your DNA from that branch of your genealogy. 10 generations is only 200, 300 years. Go back 3,000 or 6,000 years and you have absolutely zero genetic contribution from any specific person. This means that even if you had the biblical Nephilim in your ancestry, after a half dozen generations or so, there'd be no DNA of substance that would make you any different to any other human without Nephilim descent. It just so happens that 3,000 years ago, King David killed the last of the biblical giants. That means that nobody alive today, or even in the recent past, has any genetic connection to any of them, even if they are genealogically connected to them. So it's nonsensical from a scientific standpoint to point to someone's red hair or their unusual height today and suggest that they might be giants. That makes as much sense as me saying, well, the sun is round and this tennis ball is round, therefore this ball is the sun. Now, you don't get to choose some distant ancestor in particular and say, well, I'm connected to that ancestor, but not these other ones. You, know, you have four grandparents and you're connected to all of them. You have 16 great, great grandparents and you're connected to all of them. You're connected as much to the giants as you are to Adam and Eve, as much to Abraham as you are to Og of Bashan, as much to the line of Christ as you are to the line of Muhammad. If you go back far enough, we all share the same ancestry, and that's why genetics will never find Nephilim DNA. That's why the bloodline theory of the Nephilim or the seed of the serpent simply cannot work. Your connection to the ancient past might be genealogical, but it is not genetic. It's diluted like a single drop of ink in the Atlantic. You physically cannot be genetically connected to the giants. So stop looking for genetic traits in other people who all share your ancestry, by the way, and judging them as different and somehow genetically evil. It's garbage. But it sure has been an effective way of dividing people, and that's what a true son of the devil would want, isn't it? 
it's not about genetics. It's all about control. And people who've separated themselves or excluded others from the church are playing into that game, whether they know it or not. Those outside of the church see the church as a control mechanism. What they don't see is that they're already being controlled by the other side. The purpose of the church is to be Christ's body in the world, united as one and working out his purpose in the ultimate reversal of the three falls of the primeval history. So if you can take that truth to heart, you've just removed one of Satan's arrows from his quiver. There's no such thing as Nephilim bloodlines. Now your task is to spread that word. You have no idea how many people believe they are beyond saving because they think they're ineligible biologically to receive the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The truth is that we receive the sin nature, not genetically, but genealogically, which is why our connection to Adam is as important as our adoption in Christ. Why is adoption so important? Because adoption breaks the chain of genealogy. It sets you free from the inheritance of sin and death. Once you're adopted as the son of God in Christ Jesus, your ties to the transgressions of Adam, the sin of the Nephilim and the depravity of the Rephaim are all severed clean. You're a new creation being conformed to the likeness of Christ. And it starts with faith growing into allegiance. And that's why this truth about the so-called serpent seed and Nephilim bloodlines needs to get out there. If this brief explanation has raised more questions for you, Send them in and I will tackle them. But hopefully this has at least got you thinking about the absurdity of the idea that you could actually be related to Satan or to a giant or something from a biological perspective. Well, I'm blown away as always, Tim. Thank you so much. These are things I honestly never really heard or thought of before even, and yet it makes so much sense really from even a surface level reading of the New Testament. Hopefully people are going to hear this and get it out there and people can start healing from the belief that they are ineligible for salvation. Ineligible for salvation. Ineligible for salvation. Ineligible for spoke on an earlier episode about the concept of genealogical descent as opposed to genetic ancestry and the DNA of the Nephilim. In that episode, I mentioned that DNA can only be traced back 10 generations or less before it becomes indistinguishable from the general human genome, and therefore nobody is able to go back many generations in the past and demonstrate any connection to the Nephilim in terms of discernible traits or bloodline or anything like that. We debunked the idea of a Nephilim profile with things like excessive height, red hair, double rows of teeth, extra digits, and that kind of thing. But I want to talk a bit about this idea of people having Nephilim blood. So I have to ask, Chris, what's your blood type? I actually uh, donated blood last week, and I know that it's A+, which is a score I never got in school. (laughs) Ah, same as me. There are many people who believe that since they were born with the Rh negative factor associated with their blood type, which is rumoured to be connected to the Nephilim. This calls into question not just their ancestry, but their salvation and even their humanity. So the question is, does the Rh negative factor actually prove any connection to the Nephilim, to the fallen sons of God, or to Satan himself? Or is it just another human trait among others, with no particular meaning or significance at all? Believe it or not, I'm actually raising this issue because I've been personally contacted by people who have asked me these questions. I've been dealing with people who are wrestling with these issues, people who seriously worry about their own salvation and their humanity. 
So this is actually a very serious issue because if a scientific fact can call into question your status as an image-bearing human being, then does your allegiance to Yahweh bear fruit at all, or is it misplaced trust? And perhaps more ominously, are there image-bearers of Satan lurking among us, perhaps even looking just like us, infiltrating our communities, even our churches? We need answers to these questions because they are damaging to people's faith. It's quite a sad thing to come across somebody who feels like they've lost hope, mm. uh, you know, because they might have been, you know, raised uh, Christian, you know, part of the church, felt like they're doing everything right, and you know they get intrigued by this Nephilim idea, so they start looking into it, and then somebody says, you know what, <laughs> you might even be one yourself. You don't even know, you know, like just look at your blood, mm. and then it's mm. like. But, you know, because, I mean, your blood type is a fact. I mean, someone uh, yeah. you know, tests your blood and comes back and says, this is what your blood type is. Then it's like, oh, okay, well, this is a part of my identity, right? You know, I mean, genetically, this is me. Um, and, and it's incontrovertible. I mean, you don't get to go and, like, get a second opinion. Oh, no, it turns out I'm not. Like, it's, it's pretty black and white. It would so, be a pretty cruel God to create people who have no option of redemption. Yes. And that's something I keep coming up against over and over and over mm. and over again as I explore these uh, issues around the Nephilim. Uh, because it, it points to this on so many occasions that that's not how God operates. I mean, no. So, what is RH negative anyway? What is that? Blood cells have membranes made of proteins. They're, they're different ones. One in particular is called the D protein or D antigen. It used to be called RH, short for rhesus, and in common use, it still is. It was discovered that rhesus monkeys don't have this antigen. Because of this peculiarity, the protein became known as RH antigen, even though rhesus monkeys don't have it. Like the rhesus monkeys, some humans also don't have the RH or D antigen. This is a condition known as RH negative factor. Now just to clarify, blood types like A, B, or O, etc. are usually talked about as positive or negative, like O negative for example, and that is a reference to the RH factor. So your blood type might be A, and if you have the RH antigen like most people do, then you're A positive. If you don't have the RH factor, then you'd be A negative, and that's how blood types are classified. So the negative means you don't have the D or the RH antigen. That particular protein isn't found in your blood. This means that RH negative isn't a blood type, it's a factor of blood type, and it's a protein deficiency rather than some kind of extra ingredient in your blood. Now, you can't influence this by changing your diet or something. Your body manufactures these proteins according to your genetic coding, your DNA. So either you got it or you don't. That's a matter of heredity. Before talking about heredity, though, we need to know what's so special about the RH factor. People have been claiming in the past that the RH negative factor in their blood has given them special powers and abilities, ranging from healing to psychic powers, high intelligence, sensitivity to the paranormal, electromagnetic influence, and more. And the claim is that this factor comes from a non-human or even extraterrestrial point of origin. Scientifically, we ought not be surprised to find that the human genome contains influence from a variety of early sources. For those who hold an evolutionary view of human origins, 
It would be the most natural thing in the world to find that human DNA has inherited traits within certain localised early populations that later became a minority trait in the wider human population. And that goes back to which particular pre-human species gave rise to the eventual humans in that local population. These things are near impossible to nail down with any precision, but we can be fairly confident that the unknown factor does not necessitate proposing alien or Nephilim origin. Again, it's a recessive trait, so it's not like we're talking about the introduction of foreign DNA. That's not how it works. About 15% of the human population is RH negative, and being a recessive genetic trait, you need two RH negative parents to produce RH negative children. One thing that happens with RH negative mothers during pregnancy, if the child in the womb is RH positive, from an RH positive father, remember the RH positive trait is dominant, the mother's body recognises the child's blood as a hostile intruder in the mother's body. And without medical intervention, the mother's immune system can attack the child's, which can result in the death of the unborn child. This only happens with that particular combination of RH negative mother and RH positive child. And that's the interesting thing about the RH negative factor, right, is, is the royal connection. So the whole British family has it, the whole British royal family. Most US presidents had it. And so it must be something special among the global elite. Illuminati confirmed, you heard it here first. Well, it sounds special until we consider what I was saying the other week about genealogies and the way they work. If the royalty of Europe really were protecting a sacred Nephilim bloodline, then what they needed to do was a far better job of keeping it in their pants. Because most people of nobility at one time or another had a fling with an ordinary person from the common class, or quite often, lots of them. The result of that interbreeding is that every European alive today has connections to royalty in the not-too-distant past. And that's only Europe. Most Americans today have connections not only to Europe, but to a president somewhere along the line. Same goes for white Australians like ourselves here. So here's the thing. Not every sexual partner that an RH-negative person may have is going to be RH-negative themselves. In fact, it's an 85% probability against RH-negative. So as the well-known promiscuity of these so-called royal elites carries on, not only does their bloodline diminish any alleged purity, it also disseminates their traits out into the broader population. Over time, we all end up genetically common. There's nothing special about being able to get on one of those ancestry websites and find some highfalutin ancestor. And as I mentioned before, it's a recessive trait, a protein deficiency, not some extra DNA coding and certainly not something that comes from preserved bloodlines. Now, I talked about the evolutionary perspective, but you might not buy that because you hold to a young Earth and a relatively recent human origin. So in that case, there's no evolutionary trail winding back into the distant past where this genetic trait could have originated. So now you have to propose an origin story for RH negative that comes about within the last four to 7,000 years. And that's where the idea of extraterrestrial, and depending on your worldview, you might call that angelic origin, appeals. Because we have that in scripture, if you consider the sons of God in Genesis 6 to be the culprits. So this is what the ancient aliens crowd have been waiting for. As I've already mentioned several times, RH negative is a recessive trait. That means you can't introduce it into a population because the negative trait only survives if both parents are negative. These fallen angels or aliens or whatever you want to call them would have to be breeding only among themselves to preserve the absence of the RH factor, assuming that they have that condition. So what does the scripture say? This is Genesis 6 verses 1 to 2 from the King James Version. And it came to pass, 
when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Well, it's pretty clear to me, they're not breeding among themselves. It says that the sons of God took wives of the daughters of men. These are two separate groups. If we're proposing that the daughters of men are ordinary humans who can only be RH positive, then every child conceived by these sons of God, which we're assuming are all RH negative for some reason, would turn out to be RH positive. So that doesn't work at all. In fact, the only human origin theory that can account for the absence of the RH factor is the idea that it might be a loss of genetic information through natural selection. But that doesn't work either. Assuming a young earth and a recent de novo creation of Adam and Eve, we would be forced to assume that both Adam and Eve were RH positive. If they're both positive, then so are all of their kids. If they're both negative, then a young earth creationist can't account for the introduction of additional DNA in the presence of the RH antigen. So that doesn't work. And if one parent was RH negative and the other RH positive, then they'd only get RH positive kids and the negative trait dies with Adam. There just isn't a scenario where the young earth model accounts for RH negative factor. Now to be clear, I'm not doing this to use science against young earth creationism. That doesn't work because people who hold to one of these systems generally don't believe the other. I won't be wasting my time trying to make people believe one or the other. For those who came in late, my primary concern is that we understand crypto correctly. If science can teach us facts about the world God made, then I fully expect that those facts will not contradict a correct understanding of God's word. Because God is the creator of both his world and his word. If there's any discrepancy between the natural world and the Bible, it's only because we understand one or both of them poorly. What about these special powers people claim to have? Surely if people with a certain genetic trait have extraordinary abilities or powers, we'd expect more than anecdotal evidence, right? We should be able to test these things to get results. Well, apparently not. Studies have been done on this. They never found anything. I realise that's unconvincing because anyone can just claim cover-up, like the way they do with alleged giant remains or UFOs or UAPs, whatever they call them today. Uh, it is easy to say that absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. But the fact is, plenty of people experience these phenomena. Psychic powers, high intelligence, healing, sensitivity to the paranormal, electromagnetic influence. And they're not necessarily RH negative. These are ordinary people. I'm suggesting that in line with the science on this, there is no evidence of correlation between the presence or absence of the RH antigen and any kind of metaphysical influence or anomaly. In other words, it's absolutely irrelevant what your blood type is. These things happen to all kinds of people. So this idea that there are people among us descended from the Nephilim or from aliens, the product of some secretly preserved royal bloodline going back to the time before the flood, and, and I don't care what your flood model is, it's just unsustainable for anyone who knows even basic 8th grade biology. You don't need to be a scientist to be able to pick that theory apart. Just a clear thinker. <laughs> don't you think, though, Tim, that there's going to be people at home saying, but I'm RH negative, I thought I was special. What about them? Huh? Huh? Mm, fine. Yeah, look, I've been talking this whole episode about how everyone wants to be special or significant or important. You want to be special? Aim for a big reward in heaven. Live as someone who sees everyone and everything else as more important. Take care of yourself, but don't make your life about you, because it isn't about you. The big thing people talk about with blood types and genetics is how closely we match with the apes, and how it shows that we likely descended from them, 
We're basically another kind of animal in the world. But one thing that distinguishes us from animals is our ability to put others first, to give someone else an advantage in life, to not cling to our own advantage, but to sacrifice for the sake of others. Animals don't do that, but God does, and he calls us to do that. That is the mandate of Genesis 1. Take responsibility for others and ensure they're flourishing. That's not an animal trait. That's a learned behavior. That's picked up by modeling after someone, reflecting their behavior, imaging them. We can do that because God has made us to do as he does. Instead of yearning for your own significance and looking for something that makes you special or gives you an advantage, turn that mindset around. How can I benefit others? What can I do? What can I give? It's not about me. Mm, absolutely excellent point there tim and we do tend to make it all about us unfortunately which is why paul said christ must increase and i must decrease well that's probably the biggest takeaway from all this but a few other points one you you might have the rh antigen like most people or you might not you're still just as human as the rest of us you're not the offspring of the giants or aliens or the seed of the serpent you know monkeys and horses and other animals get this too are they nephilim no uh, number two, if you have experienced paranormal phenomena or you have some kind of psychic gift, there's nothing to say that it comes from your blood. Rather than credit your ancestors, and as I said before, if you go back far enough, we all have the same ancestors, give glory to God by using it for his purposes. Number three, the human identity isn't tied to a pure genome. Do you realize that about 8% of our DNA is virus antibodies that we've collected from fighting viruses or inherited from people who had infections in the past. When you get a cold or something, or even a virus like the one everyone's talking about at the moment, these things add to your antibody collection in your DNA. None of this makes you less human. And the precautionary measure, if you get antibodies injected into you, it's no different. This stuff doesn't transform you into some kind of antichrist. Anyway, I'm shaking my head. <laughs> uh, point four, last one. The, the idea that you might be genetically connected not to Adam, but to Satan or Semyaza or Belial or something. It's a lie. As I said before, you go back 300 years or 10 generations and there's not a single ancestor that contributes a thing, anything at all, to your DNA. You're a pure-blood human through and through, and there's nothing in all of history that can change that. There's no blood type that makes you ineligible for salvation, regardless of how human or otherwise you think you might be. It is adoption into sonship that makes you part of the family of God, not a biological connection. Well, continuing our series on the serpent seed doctrines, today we're going to look at the idea that Satan gave rise to his own progeny by having intercourse with Eve in the Garden of Eden. I would have liked to address this when we get to the scripture in the course of our regular study, but creeping through the text as I do, that could take like a year to get there. So we're going to hit it now in keeping with this series, and when we do get into Genesis 3 and 4, I'll be able to look at other stuff in the text at that time. So maybe you haven't heard of this idea, but it is a particularly poisonous ideology that's been festering in the internet fringe communities, particularly among the ancient aliens crowd and the Gnostics. Oh, I should say, too, it's, it's not limited to the 
to to the internet fringe. You can find this in the mainstream too. This idea was actually knocked on the head very early by uh, one of the church fathers named uh, Irenaeus, who wrote uh, his his work called Against Heresies. And uh, you just know if it's addressed in a in a work called Against Heresies, then you're already uh, in a bad place here. This is, yeah. Anything they say is heretical is likely to uh, have you end up being uh, unsaved if you uh, take it to heart. Uh, there are reasons for that. Uh, nevertheless, all the heresy needs in order to be revived is a general ignorance of doctrine combined with a prejudice that requires a convenient excuse and every now and then a fresh coat of paint. This story is the same whether it's told by Greco-Roman Gnostics, the adherents of British Israelism in the late 19th century, the Nazi party of the 20th century, or modern-day white supremacists. And uh, you should notice the trend here. These people are overwhelmingly white. See, uh, Gnosticism had one of its core ideas, this concept of light being essentially good and darkness being essentially evil. Now, that's okay if you're Roman or British or Aryan or anyone of that descent, and that's a group that includes my own ancestors since I have British ancestry, um, you know, because you're white. So that means according to Gnosticism, you're good, you're holy, you're a good person, you're, you're like God. On the other hand, according to the Gnostics, if you're black, there's something wrong with you. The Gnostics would say that blackness is evidence of evil because light is good and dark is bad. Now, obviously, I disagree with this. Uh, Chris, also, you disagree with this. Um, and we're yes. going to talk about why. <laughs> I just want to say that publicly. Yes. <laughs> but the idea that anyone with coloured skin is inherently evil has some very deep roots and lies at the core of what we call today the serpent seed theology. Now, I've had a lot of questions about this, so we're going to hit it now as a resource for those in the future who are asking. Let's just start with the idea that whiteness equals goodness. Scripture teaches in 1 John chapter 1, from verse 5, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Now, it should be quite clear from the text that the light-darkness dichotomy is analogous to the sin-purity language in the same passage. Light is symbolic of holiness, not whiteness. And nowhere is there anything about skin colour reflecting moral status or holiness. In fact, if you claim to be one of the true believers here, you have to accept that you're not without sin. And the cleansing you received from Christ was not being born white. So, I mean, you know, do you honestly think sinners are born black and saints are born white? Didn't think so. It's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us all from sin, and that alone, it doesn't matter what skin colour you have. And how obvious does it have to be in Scripture that the first hearers of this message were Jewish and therefore non-white? So it should be very clear that this kind of teaching is nothing more than a disgusting display of racist ideology. And that leads to the next question. Why would anyone start something like that? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, mind-boggling. So what goes through someone's mind who needs to twist the Bible like that? Oh, well, you can pick any from a long list of reasons. I haven't got time for all of this, but 
you know, if you're building an empire and you need your people to believe they're entitled to dominion over their neighbour, well, you know, there you have it. And back in the age of discovery, when Europeans were sailing all over the globe in an effort to conquer the world, they would encounter people groups that they've never seen before. And if you think that the table of nations in Genesis 1 was supposed to be an exhaustive list of all the peoples of the world, then you have to explain these people who are not in the list. And the thinking was, well, these can't be humans. They must be entirely separate race because we don't find them in the Bible. So that automatically makes them animals, savage beasts that aren't connected to Scripture and can't have any connection to Christ or any purpose in God's plan. Uh, you know, that might sound ridiculous, but here in Australia, the indigenous people were so badly mistreated by the colonisers that they were not even given legal status as humans until the 1960s. All right? I mean, that's, that's my parents' generation. Right? That just breaks my heart. In fact, as recently as the early 80s, uh, Aboriginal people were still being forcibly removed from Indigenous families and placed in white households here in Australia in an effort to cut off their ties with family and country. Like just, I mean, I mean, Hitler used the Bible, didn't he? And like you're saying about the Aryan yeah. and all that kind of stuff, like these are evil people and, you know, we're the chosen ones of God. And any, yeah, any argument that starts from that perspective is not honouring God or your neighbour which are the two greatest commandments. So I yeah. don't know how people, you really have to twist your own mind to kind of justify it. Yeah, it's very logical. Yeah, that's right. And deceptive. Yeah, I think it comes from a warped view of what humanity actually is. Mm. I mean, that's one reason why we spent a few episodes talking about the image of God mm. and uh, and tying that to a, a correct view of, of what actually makes us human and you know, distinct in that way. Because mm. um, I think once you've actually sat down and gone through that seriously and taken a look around you, you realise that you just can't separate any group out of humanity and say that, well, you know, they don't yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, that was the antithesis, um, you know, I mean, Jesus' message was this is for the Gentiles and the Jews. It's like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that's, that's why I made the point that... Um, Man was made in the image of God before we get talking about Adam and Eve. Mm. So, I mean, yeah, they're not even necessarily in the picture and we've already got, mm. um, you know, the, the human race as God's image bearers. Mm. There is only one race. So what if we recognise that these people are, in fact, humans? or at least human enough to pass if you can't bring yourself around to, to that way of thinking, we still have to explain where they come from. Because if there are people outside of the Scriptures and we're told that the Bible contains all truth, now there's a dangerous logical misstep, then the existence of these people challenges the Bible. And this led many in the religious community to propose that perhaps the indigenous communities of the Americas, Southern Africa, Australia and other lands had come from some mysterious lineage that the Bible is deliberately almost silent about. Were they actually the Nephilim? Obviously not. This was fueled in part by the Table of Nations being treated as exhaustive, and in part by readings of the flood account that give the impression of a global flood, where we see things like all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered in Genesis 7.19, or the whole world had one language and a common speech in Genesis 11.1. These were taken to be affirmations that the Bible had nothing to say about people beyond the continental landmass. So if that's the case, you have to find your savages elsewhere in Scripture to account for them. 
And that means going back further in Genesis to find any possible means by which some other presumably subhuman species might have arisen. Now, on the one hand, you have your line of good guys in Genesis 5. Uh, we're only assuming they're good because of Noah being at the end of the line, but that's another story. And on the other, you have your bad guys, as exemplified first in Cain, the murderer. And we want to be like the good guys. So Cain receives this mark from God that makes him different, and then he goes away to some distant land. What if God made Cain black? Now we have black folks in faraway places just waiting to be discovered by good white Christians in the 16th century. I hope this makes you feel sick as much as it does me. But um, that doesn't go far enough because if we're buying the story so far, Cain is still human, not Nephilim, made in God's image. And you can't have that if you want to have the right to treat these people as less than human so that you can take their land and claim it for king and country. The solution then is to claim some other parentage for Cain that separates him from Adam. And the way to do that is to take a very particular reading of Genesis 3 that muddies the waters concerning Eve's involvement with the serpent. So here's what the Bible really says in Genesis 3, verses 1 to 15. And we're going to read from the RSV. Now the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent beguiled me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all cattle and above all wild animals. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And going on to Genesis 4, Verse 1, now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. All right, so that's our readings from the scripture. Now, we picked up in the RSV the use of seed there in uh, 3.15, which gave rise to the name of this doctrine. It's very pervasive. You can find this doctrine among many Baptists, but not all, among many Pentecostals, but not all. 
among many Jehovah's Witnesses, but not all, and among countless other groups, both fringe and mainstream. It's actually popular in some Reformed circles because if you take your hardcore Calvinism, where some are created for eternal life and some are created to be objects of wrath, well, it fits hand in glove. You ask a serious Calvinist if some people are the seed of Satan and they'll just say, well, yeah, of course. But it takes some serious effort to be able to get this out of Scripture. So here's how you make it work. First, you have to pretend that eating is a euphemism for sex. Then you have to pretend that the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the same thing as the serpent himself. Then you have to argue that Eve realising she was naked was because she'd just been having sex and somehow she doesn't realise this before or during having sex. Did she do it with her clothes on? In another version of this, it's the beguiling that apparently means having sex. Again, there's no leg to stand on here, but whatever. Is that a serpent joke? He didn't have a leg to stand on. Ah, good one. All right, and when the serpent says your eyes will be opened, it's apparently a euphemism for the opening of the womb or something like that, despite the fact that these euphemisms don't work anywhere else in Scripture and would have to apply to Adam as well. Oh, yeah, that's right. Adam did this too. Does he have a vagina? Was he doing it with the serpent too? And Come on, man. And then you also have to ignore the only genuinely correct euphemism that does appear in the text, the bit where Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore Cain. And after all that, you have to assume that Eve was lying or deceived when she said that she'd gotten a man with the help of the Lord. That's Yahweh there. So apparently it was not Yahweh, but Eve said it was, and actually it was the serpent, or, or was it? Um, yeah, no, it's just um, the kind of thing when personal prejudices or political ideals or, you know, whatever it is that motivates the thing in in the background. When that becomes more important than Scripture, then you start trying to find other ways to read the Scripture to make it work. And, yes. Yeah. So, okay, now I can justify it. Mm. I don't have to feel bad about my hate. Yeah, and, it's pretty, it's pretty you scary. know, the, the sure way to... Uh, to trip these things up is to just go back and check the rest of Scripture, and you know, doesn't make <laughs> up. I mean, you yeah. know, you just don't find the kind of twisted use of of terminology in, anywhere else in Scripture. You know, this uh, when 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 Eve says that you know the serpent beguiled me, oh, that yeah, that we we, we were doing it. Like, that's yeah. <laughs> how do you ever get this? Like, yeah, you know, there's, there's just no support for that. No. And, yeah, as I say, you have to take pretty much everything in that whole 15 verses there of of Genesis 3 and then ignore half of, of Genesis 4.1 and use that as your basis. Uh, and, uh, as I say, then, then it sort of starts to twist in other things like the Nephilim and the rest of it. Oh, well, you know, yeah. they must have been black people. You know, like, it's just, it's mad. And the other thing, too, is we're starting to see a reversal of it now, and not a good reversal, just a different way of telling the same lie but with a different audience because now we've got uh, groups like the uh, black Hebrew Israelites, and they, oh, okay. they are African Americans who believe that they really are the the real biblical Jews and that the people that we know of as ethnic Jews from Israel are all imposters and, and they're not God's people. <laughs> you know, and they, they reckon that God's black. I mean, I, I actually touched on this in an earlier episode we did where, yeah, I sort of mentioned, because I, I read a verse from Jeremiah that talked, you know, where God said that, like, his face was black, which was supposed to represent mourning or something, you know. Like oh, was, right, yeah. Just, you know 
grieving. And uh, yeah, they they took that and went, see, God's black, you know, like us, and you know, the rest of you, you're all going to hell. And oh, man. it's it's just a reversal of, of yeah. the same thing. Let's say a, a fresh coat of paint on the same yeah heresy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, these things just keep popping up. Here's where the story takes a twist from the modern audience where early interpreters saw the serpent or perhaps another divine enemy in Genesis 4, verse 1, leave it to the moderns to think of some crazy alternative. It's got to be aliens, right? Tell me it's aliens. Well, I'm not saying it was aliens, but it was aliens. Yeah, the idea that aliens came to Earth in the distant past to hybridise monkeys into Homo sapiens has been around since the 1960s, but... You don't even need to get into that ridiculous nonsense to refute the claim because it still relies on ignoring what the Bible says about how Eve conceived Cain. But anyway, all that rubbish, as stupid as it sounds, is apparently easier to accept than the straight teaching of Scripture because if there wasn't some kind of other race existing among us, then surely Jesus was lying when he said to the Pharisees in John 8.44, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So what was Jesus talking about there? Well, we're out of time, so we'll hit that next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant questions we're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on amazon or goodreads to help it become more visible in search results even if you just give it stars that'll help but a full review is certainly really appreciated please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show in the future we want to be talking about your stories as well not just our own so if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience we want to hear from you and we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful of course this podcast comes out every week but you want to make sure you never miss an episode so if you haven't already subscribed do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops that's all we have time for today We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, GravesForsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions, by DJ Stephen on Amazon. Paperback, Check out the other podcasts at RavenCreekSC.com, GiantAnswers.com, Please follow and have us on socials, don't forget to subscribe to the Rantabot Show. Send us all your questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answered. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and